The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com. Let me invite you to take your copy of God's Word open with me to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12, uh, we, we schedule um, communion a year at a time. And uh, by God's providence, uh, we come to Exodus chapter 12 talking about uh, the Passover, which is a directly connected to um, communion, the Lord's Supper. In fact, when Jesus, before he was arrested and taken to the cross, uh, celebrated what the disciples would have believed, would, what, what they were celebrating was the Passover. And uh, they would have expected Jesus to take the, the bread and say something like, this is the, the bread of uh, our, our affliction that our forefathers ate uh, in Egypt, in the wilderness. And, and, uh, but Jesus instead said, this is my body, take and eat. And what Jesus did in that last supper, the Lord's Supper, is he showed them the true meaning of the Passover, that it was pointing to him, that he was becoming their bread of affliction. Uh, And so today, God's providence has led us here to look at this passage together. Let me just uh, ask you a question before we read the text. Uh, How many of you, if, and this is going to get a little, you know, participatory, hopefully, so be a leader and jump out there, but, but if you are a firstborn son, stand up. I'm standing because I'm a firstborn son. Okay, look around the room. Firstborn sons. Yeah, Makai, you stand up. Yeah, that's, that's you. All right. Yeah. Um, sorry, he, he knew. He was just wrestling with that, you know. So, yeah. 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 Okay. Look, uh, just look around. Before you sit down, look around. Congregation, look around. Look at the people who are firstborn sons. All right, you can be seated. Now, when we, when we read through this passage today, I want you to feel the weight of what it would mean for in an entire nation and in an entire community for all of the firstborn sons to be killed in a night. Those people gone, wiped away, Think of how it would affect this community, this faith family. Think of how it would have affected Israel. Think of how it must have affected Egypt as we read this passage together. And I just want to put this question out there for the entire sermon. If there were a way... For you to avoid that, to be saved from that, to come under protection from that, would you want to know, and if you knew, would you take it? Let's look at our passage together, Exodus chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish. 
a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs, its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night. And I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This morning, I want to draw for us very quickly just a few lessons from the Passover. A few lessons from the Passover that we also see and celebrate in the Lord's Supper. So first is this. God has given us, those who are in Christ, those who are Christians, those who are, uh, have been called out of sin, trusting Christ alone, God has given us a new beginning. God has given us a new beginning. We see this in verse 2 when God gives instructions for Moses to tell the people, this will now be the first month of the year for you. This will be the beginning of the year. When we read this, we think, why? Why would God have to tell them when their year would begin, when their calendars would start and when they would end? Because in that ancient culture, some celebrated the end and the, and the beginning at different times. Some started the year in the fall. Um, some, some started in the spring. If they started in the fall, there was, there was pumpkin spice everything, right? And that was the, that was the kickoff of their year, um, some started in the spring. The Israelites would have, would have been used to the transition from summer to fall being the end of the year. It, it was known as sort of the, the agricultural calendar, that everything had sort of come to that, and the fall was the harvest, and that was the end of the year. And this would have been what the Israelites would have been used to. And also for about 430 years, um, Pharaoh had ruled over them. In about two weeks or so, we don't know exactly, but the most 14 days here, God is going to lead them out. He's going to lead them out of Egypt, out from under the rule of Pharaoh once and for all. Remember when they first came to Egypt, they came as favorable guests. They were, they were loved and appreciated. And Joseph had, had led the, the, the nation to to store up for uh, the, the famine, the drought that would come. But over the years, that Pharaoh had died and a new Pharaoh came and they had become slaves and tools to be used. But now God was about to lead them out. Even in this, God was when, when God here gives them this this will be the first month of the year for you. God was building into their calendar a reminder of him and of his deliverance. 
They would be used to starting the year at the kind of end of fall going into the winter. But God would say, no more. You will now start your year contrary to everyone else around you. Your year will start in the spring. This would have been roughly March or April for, for according to our calendar today. So we have Easter there in March or April. And God was saying to them, I'm going to start your year. I'm going to orient your calendar in such a way that you will forevermore be reminded that because of what I have done, I have given you a new beginning. Everything changes. Everything is now oriented either to this point or from this point. I have given you a new beginning. God did something similar when Jesus was crucified. Up to that point, they had worshiped on the Sabbath. But when Jesus was crucified and when he was raised from the dead, the day of worship changed from Saturday to Sunday because it became the Lord's day. God has done the same thing for us in Christ that he has done for the Israelites. When he led them out of Egypt, he said, you have a new beginning that changes everything. And when he brought Christ from the tomb, he said, for all who follow him, for all who trust in him, there is a new beginning as well. Even more, though, than just a day of the year or a day of the week, when Jesus calls and delivers you and I from the oppression of our sin, delivers us from the guilt, the real guilt of our sin, and as we've looked at on Wednesday nights, adopted us into his family, He's given us a new beginning like no other. That when you and I come to know the Lord, when we are converted, when, we, when, when God makes us alive and makes our ears hear it in a new and a fresh way, makes our hearts embrace the gospel, God says everything changes from here on out. Isn't that true? That when you came to know Christ, you couldn't live the same way you lived before. You couldn't look at life the same way you had before. Everything changed from that moment. Some of you, that's more dramatic than others. I was saved at eight years old, and so for me, there wasn't a real drastic shift in the way I viewed the world. I still loved G.I. Joe and Star Wars and all those things and didn't know exactly how Jesus changing my life changed those things. But for others of you, it has been drastic. Maybe you were in high school or in college or in your 30s or 40s or 50s or 60s or beyond. And Jesus invaded your life with the good news of the gospel that you didn't even know you needed until then and everything shifts from there. God gives us a new beginning. It's, it, it, when we come to this table this morning, I want it to be in your memory, in your mind from the beginning. When you come to this table as a blood-bought believer, a child of God adopted into his family, I want you to take the bread and take the cup, remembering that God gave me a new beginning. God led me out of slavery. He led me out of the oppression of my sin and he is still to this day leading me out of that oppression. Secondly is this. Not only has God given us a new beginning, but God has given us a new family. 
God has given us a new family. In verses 3 and 4, I want you to take note of all the words that, that connote togetherness or being part of a group or a family. If you walk through verses 3 and 4, you see words like congregation. Uh, I've, I've, never been, I've, I've never seen a congregation of one. You ever seen a congregation of one? I have at times felt like I'm preaching to a congregation of one. Uh, but I've never seen a congregation of one. The, the, the word itself is a word that God invented to picture his people as not, a, not a, just, just a bunch of individuals doing their own thing, but as a group of people that have been brought together by this common bond of the cross. We've been brought into a congregation. There's another word uh, or phrase here, according to their father's houses. It's the idea of extended family. That he tells them, here's what you're to do. You're going to go get a, a lamb according to your father's houses. And when we hear today, 2015, in the church, we have extended families, but we are also part of an extended family here. Pictures this extended family. We also see in this the, the, the design of the family, that, that fathers are to lead the way here. That God, even in the building of the family, has called them to be together and have a common leader. There's a word here in this, verses 3 and 4, the the word household. Those that are living under the same roof. Nearest neighbor is in these two verses. If if they were too small to, to... be able to eat an entire lamb, they were to reach out to their nearest neighbors and they were to figure out how much they needed. And, and it was to be this, this part of this bigger community than themselves. This is a community unlike today. Today, we live in neighborhoods, a lot of us do, and we pull into our driveways and we hit the garage door opener and we pull our cars into, into the garage and we close the garage and we go inside and we don't know who lives next to us. This is not like that community. They knew one another. They were to to share this meal together. There's something intimate about sharing a meal with other people. And this is a picture of what God has done in the church. Last Sunday, we went down and we shared a meal together. And we couldn't all get around one table, but chances are you sat with some people that maybe you wouldn't normally sit with. I hope you did that. And you found that while... You may not like all the same things. There's a bond that could never be severed. We've been brought into a new family. We're we're brought into this new family called the church. Both the universal church, the, the church at large, which means we're part of this family of Christians around the globe. But also we're brought into this local church. And all through the New Testament, if you look at the, the letters written by Paul. Paul's not writing to the universal church. He's writing to a, a local expression, a local body of a church. There can be no living out of the gospel in the universal church. The only way that can take place is in the local church. You cannot love one another, the universal church. You love one another in the local church. We're, we're called and we're brought into that. There's no such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian We're called to to bear one another's burdens and to celebrate one another's victories, to to spur one another on to love and good deeds. 
Romans 12 talks about this. For by the grace given to me, Paul said, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Well, just as in this passage in Exodus 12, they were called to eat with their nearest neighbors and to come around a table together with either their their family or their neighbors' families, we will come to a table today as well. We will come from these chairs and we will walk forward and some of you will eat together with your immediate family. Some of you will eat with... An extended family, your Sunday school class or a small group or uh, just close friends that are here in the church. We will come to this table and we will display that we are part of a new family that God has given to us all. We're not eating multiple lambs in multiple houses today. We are today going to partake of the one lamb given to us by God. Third is this, God has given us a way to be holy. God has given us a new beginning, he's given us a new family, and God has given us a way to be made holy. Verses five and six, your lamb shall be without blemish. What's the purpose of requiring a lamb to be without blemish? Does it affect the the quality of the meat? No, I, I, I don't think so. A, uh, a lame or a spotted or an off-colored animal, well, it's just as tasty as one that doesn't have all those things, right? Sorry for all the vegetarians. Or, well, I, I, hope, I hope I didn't offend you too greatly, but you know, if PETA were here, I'm sure I'd be in trouble. But anyway, I better stop and get back to my notes. Um, <laughs> It could not have been that it would affect the taste of the meat or the quality of the meat. A lamb could be born blind but still yield a good meal. Instead, a perfect animal would remind them that God was holy and that God requires holiness. That he provided for them a perfect sacrifice and that one day he would again provide a final perfect sacrifice. So that we, they, we could be counted holy. Jesus would one day come and and be that perfect lamb. That perfect lamb without blemish. Uh, You think about Jesus' life. Jesus was born of a virgin. Because he was born of a virgin... He didn't inherit Adam's sin nature. He had no no tendency to run off towards sin like we have. We are children of Adam, but Jesus was not. Jesus was not a son of Adam. He was born to Mary by the Spirit of God. Jesus, not only that, but he never committed any sin of his own. He never willfully, actually sinned in his entire life. First um, Peter two twenty two says he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. 
Hebrews 4.15 says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. When Jesus was arrested and he was taken before Pontius Pilate, even Pontius Pilate tried to give him back to the people saying, I find no fault in him. Hebrews 9.14 says that that Jesus offered himself without blemish to God. So when God here, through Moses, tells the Israelites, choose for yourself a lamb without defect, without blemish, he's pointing them forward to this final lamb who would come. That Jesus would be the perfect, without blemish lamb. When you and I come to the table today, we know that in ourselves we're not holy. We're declared holy if we're in Christ. We're justified. God looks at us and doesn't see us. He sees Jesus. And so we're positionally declared right and holy. But you and I know that in our everyday life, when we flesh out our living, we're not without sin. We yell at our spouse. We eat too much. We look at things that we shouldn't look at. We, we have attitudes that we shouldn't have. We have desires that lead us places that, that we shouldn't have. And we know, we know within ourselves that we're not practically holy. And the idea here is not for you to come to the table and say, I have arrived. The idea is for you to come to the table today having trusted in the perfect, unblemished Lamb of God and continuing to trust in the perfect, unblemished Lamb of God. God has given us a way to be holy and it is not by pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps or gritting our teeth and trying harder. It is by trusting in God's provision. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's our only hope. Fourth, God has given us a way to be protected from death. God has given us a way to be protected from death. In verse 7 Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. You think about how strange this would have been. You're in your house. Think about it. Dads, you're living in the house with your families and you're instructed to bring this lamb into your house and to keep it from the 10th of the month to the 14th of the month. Your kids play with this lamb. They get to know this lamb. They bring the lamb to their bed They've named it. And on the 14th day of the month, you're ordered to slaughter the lamb. And you hear your children say, Daddy, why? And they watch you. They watch you take the hyssop and dip this plant into the blood of the lamb and watch you paint the doorway going into their house and they think why? And then we read 12 and 13 for I will 
pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. He's not here simply talking to the Egyptians. God has a right to the firstborn sons of Israel as well. Both man and beast and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So, Daddy, when your child is saying, why, Daddy? God has put a direct opportunity in your Life in your mouth to say, because God has given us a way to be saved. And we will trust the Lord. Philip Graham Ryken makes this very graphic and brings this home in his commentary when he said, the same night that God brought death to every house in Egypt, he also visited the home of every Israelite with the purpose of killing their firstborn sons. Now, we don't like to think about God like that. He's coming to kill them. Why would God do that? Weren't these his chosen people? Absolutely, they were. But the point is, they were just as deserving of judgment and death as Egypt was. They were just as guilty of of Adam's sin because they were children, descendants of Adam. They were also guilty of willfully rebelling against God. Remember when, when Moses first comes, they distrust him? In chapter five, they say, You've made us a stench. To Pharaoh, and you've put a sword in his hand to kill us. They distrust God's prophet and therefore distrust God. They've sinned against God. They will continue to sin against God. They will go out in the wilderness and they will bicker. They will argue. In fact, in in Joshua chapter 24, when Joshua is about to finally lead the people into the promised land, and he gives that great speech of choose this day whom you will serve, part of that speech is put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. What had happened was they had lived in Egypt around Egypt's gods so long that they had began to try to be syncretistic in the worship of the one true God, as well as they had picked up the gods of Egypt and tried to worship them as well. Israel deserved to die in the same way that Egypt deserved to die. And in the same way, you and I here today are also guilty and we deserve to die as well. Romans 3.23 says, we've all sinned, we've all fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin is death. It's always been death. This is what God told Adam and Eve in the garden would happen. And it happened. The proof that all people are sinners is is the fact that all people die. If If the wages of sin is death then if you're innocent, you're not going to die. 
But the fact that there is a day out there in your future when death will come. Unless Jesus comes again, death will come. Proves that you indeed are guilty. God had just as much a right to kill the Israelites as the Egyptians. However, God would save them by his grace by providing for them a lamb to take their place. This is the beauty of what we do here today. And when we come and we take this bread and we take this cup, we are reminding ourselves that God has put forward his own son and allowed him to lay his life down and give his body in our place and drain his blood in our stead. He has provided a way for us to be kept from death. God has always provided a substitute. If you look through scripture, Genesis 3, what happens? Adam and Eve have sinned. They're hiding in the garden. They're naked. They hear God coming. They sew together fig leaves trying to hide and try to pull one over on God. Imagine that. You know, I mean, this is, this is the ultimate, like, dad's home early. Let's do something moment, right? What does God do? After he confronts them in their sin, he kills an animal and provides for them the skins of the animal to cover themselves. Genesis 22, God calls Abraham to sacrifice his own son, to sacrifice Isaac. Abraham follows through knowing that even if, even if he kills his own son, that God's able to raise him from the dead. This is the faith Abraham displays. And he packs the, the wood and the knife on his son, and they go and they build the altar. And, and Isaac says, Dad, we've got everything else, but where's the lamb? And Abraham says, God will provide, son. And in that moment where Abraham has the knife raised about to slay his own son, God says, Abraham, stop. Now I know that you'll trust me and that you'll believe me. And Abraham looks and there is now a ram caught in the thicket provided by God. And he's able to take his own son off of the altar and slay the ram and offer it instead. All throughout the Old Testament and and Israelite history, we see God providing on the Day of Atonement. Every year, a lamb for the people. Every year, they would go to the temple. There would be this mass journey to Israel, to the the temple. and, And they would there have one lamb that one priest would slaughter and take the blood of that lamb into the Holy of Holies as a way to atone for the sins of the the nation together. God has done this all throughout history. And it would not be the last time that God would do it either. All of those lambs, the, the lamb... In the garden, the lamb for Abraham, the the, the lambs for years in the temple, all of them pointed forward to the final lamb that God would send. And this is why John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus coming in John 1.29, says, Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
God graciously here in Exodus provided for them a substitutionary lamb, and he has done the same for all who will believe. He has provided Jesus. See, they had to take hold of it by faith. The way they took hold of it by faith was obeying what God had told them to do, to take the hyssop, dip it into the blood, and paint the doorposts of their house, and then go inside and don't come out. And all over Egypt that night, there were screams and wails all over Egypt, but huddled in Israelite homes were people behind blood-covered doorways that were kept safe. The same way, friend, you today must also take hold of the lamb provided for you by faith. You must take hold of Jesus as your only hope. You see Jesus for who he is and what he is. He's the lamb provided by God to take your place. You trust in his blood to protect you. And only then God will pass over you. Philip Graham Ryken, again, a quote from him, from his commentary, wrote this. Because specifically in, in the text, God says the blood will be a sign for you. And when I see the blood, so there's this, you're, the, the people are looking at the blood one way and God is looking at the blood another way. And Philip Graham Ryken says, when we look up to the cross, we see that payment has been made for our sin. And what does God see when he looks down at the cross? He sees that it is stained with the blood of his very own firstborn son. And when God sees the blood of his son, he says, it is enough. My justice has been satisfied. The price for sin is fully paid. Death will pass over you and you will be safe forever. Won't you come into the covering of the blood of Jesus? Be reminded of that as you come to the table today, Christian, that the cup that you take is God's provision of a lamb in your place. And then lastly is this. God has given us a promise of his coming. God has given us a promise of his coming. In verses 8 through 11, I want you to look at the way that they were instructed to eat this meal. You look at all the ways that they're, they're, it's explained to them here that it was to be roasted on fire. Why roast it on fire? Why not boil it? Or, or, or you know, why not some other means of, of cooking this? Because roasting on fire is the quickest way possible to cook a meal. It, it, it required no setup. It required no cleanup, no washing of pots and utensils. It required no additional drawing of water. No waiting for water to boil. I mean, it's, it's very quick. They're to eat this meal roasted over the fire. With unleavened bread, the Bible here says, no time for the dough to rise. Just mix it together and bake it as it is. Don't wait for this thing to, 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 to set up and to rise and for the yeast to, to, to whatever yeast does. 
It's got to be quick. They're told to eat it with bitter herbs. Bitter herbs were the easiest to find. And many times they were eaten as side dishes. Most of the time they were eaten either roasted or even raw alongside of of the meat that they were having. But also these bitter herbs would remind them of the bitter treatment, the bitter service that they endured while they were in Egypt as slaves. They're told to to roast the animal with its head and its legs and its inner parts. And I don't want to get too graphic here, but this does not mean that... uh, that it's just, I mean, just throw the whole thing on there. Instead, the picture here is of a simple gut, that the animal is gutted simply and roasted, that it's not fully butchered. It doesn't have all the, the organ meats separated out for later consumption. It's just quickly gutted and quickly roasted. Anything that remains... Until morning you shall burn. They would have to trust God to provide for them in the journey they were about to set out on. Their belts were to be fastened, their sandals on their feet, their staves in their hand. Staves, is that the plural of staff? I don't know. I I might have just like said they were infected with something. I I really don't know. But their staff in their hand. It means they're ready to go. I mean, they're they're not going to take time to, oh, where's my shoes? I mean, anybody have kids in the morning going to school? Where's my shoes? I mean, it's like a meltdown to find my shoes, right? There's none of that. You've got to be ready. Sandals on your feet, belt fastened, staff in your hand, ready to go. Eat in haste, it says. It's not a meal to linger over with friends and have good conversation. And they, by all Indications they ate this meal standing up. They just ate standing up, quick meal, ready to go. And why? Because God is giving them a reminder that He is coming to lead them out of Egypt. That they are not to just slink down into the comfort of, even though it's not ideal, their surroundings. Instead, they are to be called to be ready because God will come. As we eat this meal today, church, be reminded that God also is coming again for us. Oh, that he would give us a readiness for him to come. My fear is that that we have become so comfortable in this land, in this home, that we don't really desire for him to come like we should. Oh, that God would tear down the affections for this world and replace them with affections for his return. I'm not saying that you can't love things of this world. Listen, I watched college football yesterday with a vengeance. Right? I mean, I, I, I love it. I get all into it. My team lost in the end, and I got mad, and I, you know, I stormed out of the room, and Florida fan down here smiling at me. I, I see that. I see that. You're on the bad list, all right? But listen, we, we can enjoy those things. But oh, that God would cause us to long for him and for his return even more. God is coming to 
lead us out of this land of captivity to set us out on a journey toward our forever home. So as you take this meal together today, be reminded that we eat it here this way right now. But one day, we will sit at the table of the marriage supper of the Lamb and we will feast because he's coming again. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I thank you, God, for your word. God, I pray that you would take it now and, God, that you would help us, God, to see that it is true, that it is trustworthy because you are trustworthy, that it is beautiful. God, I I pray that you would meet us today where we are. And God, I thank you that by your grace, you won't leave us where we are. God, I pray that as we come to the table today as a church family, that we would come understanding that you've given us a new beginning, a new family, a way for us to be made holy, a way for us to be protected from death, and a reminder that you are coming again. God, help us to celebrate those. Bring it home to our hearts, God, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We want to give you an opportunity to respond. Maybe, maybe for just a few minutes, you just need to sit and just contemplate and think about what's been given to us, what you've heard today. Maybe you already know what you need to do and you're here today and you say, I got to have that because I don't have any other hope outside of that. You've never turned from your sin and trusted in the lamb provided for you. Then today, you can be saved. You can come under the blood of Christ and be saved. I would love to have a conversation with you about that. I'll be down here on the front row. Feel free to get up as others are moving and just come down and and just, just ask me about it love to talk with you about that. There are others in this room that you could turn to them. Maybe you're here with a friend or a family member and you could talk to them about it. And I I feel confident that they could lead you toward Christ, knowing what to do next. But the vast majority of us, this is church family. And so we want to respond in the taking of the Lord's Supper of communion together. We do this differently here, and most of you know this, and, and I'll explain this just because some are new. Um, we're not passing the elements back to you. Um, we're we're going to ask you to, to get up and to come to the table. The reason we do this is, is not just because we want to be different. The reason we do this is because I, I want this to be a willful moment of following Christ for you. If, 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 if this is not you and you're not a believer, let me just tell you something. Don't, don't get up and come take this meal. We're telling you we believe what you've heard today. 
don't make a mockery of that if you don't believe it and come and participate in what for you would be this empty ritual. But if you are here today and you are a believer, a person who's come to know Christ and you're a member of this church or if you're a member of another church, you're visiting with us here today and you're in good standing with that church, then we would invite you to come and reflect on all that's been said, all that's been given to you in the body and the blood of Jesus. This is, when you take the lid off, this is simply bread and juice, but it represents so much more. As you line up, it's not a time to talk about football yesterday or talk about the weather or anything like that. Take this time seriously. If you're here today and you can't get to the table because of health issues, you're not as mobile, feel free to raise your hand and we'll be glad to bring it to you. But today, let's seriously celebrate God's provision of a lamb in our place and look forward to his coming again. You respond as God leads. This time of teaching is brought to you by Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com.